Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Chapman, and if there's one thing I believe, it's that you're capable of making your dreams a reality and that the world needs you to be living out your purpose. One thing I love is to chat with people doing impactful work in hopes that we can all learn something from the conversation. Not to mention, we get to apply all of that wisdom to our own journey. Each week, you will hear just that here at the Radiant Podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Radiant Podcast. And this week, we have my friend Justine Froeckler joining us. Full of grit and grace, Justine uses her fiery passion, the occasional curse word, and witty humor to share her vulnerability and truth to light up the world. Justine is an advocate for speaking unspoken shame and choosing to thrive when life doesn't turn out how you hoped, dreamed, or planned. Her spirit helps others to feel seen and empowered to change their own lives no matter what hand they've been dealt and to ultimately do the work of happy. Guys, I loved this conversation with Justine so much. We actually lost the first recording and she was so gracious to record again with me. And I think it was even better. She says she has such a way with words and and with sharing her personal story of grief and how she stepped into wholeness and freedom and healing after navigating the dark and murky waters of tremendous pain. And she shares her story to extend that helping hand up and that hand of hope to others. She also wrote a book about it called The Complicated Gray, which makes so much sense because things are so often not black or white. They're more gray. And so I think she has so much to say. I know you're going to love this episode. She is also certified in Brene Brown's The Daring Way. And so again, she just brings a different angle of vulnerability and a diminishing of shame to the table. And I think you're going to love this conversation. It's one of the best I've had about grief and loss. And again, I think you're going to love it. So I can't wait for you guys to meet Justine. If you love this episode, screenshot it and share it on your Instagram story and tag Justine and I. Not only does it help us know who's listening and what part of the conversation you loved, it helps spread the word. So I'm not gonna hassle you with that anymore. You know, you hear me say that every single week, but I just wanted to remind you to share about it and help spread the word about the Radiant Podcast. But let's get to it. Let's dive in. Hey, Justine. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to have you back on with me. This is actually our... (laughs) Second time recording, but our conversation, even though it is lost in the abyss of digital something, I (laughs) knew we had to re-record because our conversation was one of my favorite interviews ever. I think your story is so special and you come to the table with such transparency. Um, And so I can't wait for the Radiant Tribe to hear your story, get to know you, meet you, all the things. Can you start off by telling us? who you are, what you do, and in the full gamut of your story. Sure. Like the Cliff Notes version? Like No, the long one. <laughs> um, so I I am um God, I'm a speaker of the unspoken. I think like that is like really what I am walking in that truth of, especially lately. Like I there's so many of us just hiding in the dark of the unspoken. And I love telling my story of resilience and then teaching you how to speak your unspoken to live a better life. And so I, I grew up in a really small town in Iowa and um, like no stoplight, small town. We're talking small town. Um, my job as a senior in high school, I milked cows. Um, yeah. So like, and people are always shocked by that, but that's just, I was a small town girl, but the beginning of my story really started with, um, I was a dancer growing up. That's what I was going to do. I was going to go to college. I was going to dance. I wanted to move to New York. That's what I was going to do. And around age 11 ish, I started to have debilitating pain and we started going to a bunch of doctors and we were misdiagnosed for about a year and a half until finally, um, a specialist found, um, two cracks on L5. So the last vertebra, the lowest one and grade four slippage. And so, um, I, it was on a year old x-ray. Unfortunately, I had been misdiagnosed for that long. And two weeks later, I had my first back surgery the summer before my freshman year of high school. And, um, I was in a body cast from chin to knees for six months, that first surgery. And then three years later, when I tried to go back out for track, 
And I just was like, you guys, I was like, I went back to the doctors and I was like, you guys said it would feel better. Like it would be stronger. And I don't think something, something's wrong. And they took the MRI and we discovered that I was the 10% that surgery did not take. And so we had to repeat the exact same surgery my senior year of high school. And I was in a body brace this time, but still chin to knees for another six months. So, um, you know, I always tell people like I'm, I was the girl back then trapped in the darkness of a body cast. And because of that journey, years later, 20 years after that journey, um, my husband and I embarked on an infertility journey to try to make our family. So um, we went through the whole infertility journey and we lost three babies and we ended our journey without children. Um, the money was gone and our hearts were broken and we live what I call a child full life. And so I work hard to create and fight for and receive other ways to mother um, because it's a huge value of mine. And so, and I do that through the work that I do. I'm a mental health therapist by trade. I've been in traditional mental health for 20 years. The last year I've been um, writing and speaking and teaching because I'm trained with, um, or I'm, I'm certified with Dr. Brene Brown. So um, I love teaching the skills of courage to people through their resilient stories because I think a lot of us are, we all, we'll all have traumas, losses, and tragedies. We'll all have them. None of us get out of this life unscathed. And I think for many of us, we call those parts of our stories, our hard stories. And I believe that we must do the work to turn them into our big story. Oh, mic drop. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Justine. So when did your journey, I would assume, you know, as most amazing therapists begin, you were probably working on healing from your own journey, right? What, what sent you down yeah. the route of going into this field? Because I, I yeah. assume with all the pain and heartache and loss you've experienced, you had to go through a pretty lengthy, um, for lack of a better word, journey of healing mm -hmm. yourself. Yes. Yes, for sure. And you know, it's, you know, back when looking back now, when I, you know, 11 years old, misdiagnosed, one, the first misdiagnosis I had when I was having pain was back then we called it conversion hysteria. And so the doctors put me through terrible tests, like super painful tests. And they basically said, your brain's making up the, the pain. There's nothing physically wrong. It's psychosomatic. And they made me go see a sports psychologist. And I remember, I remember thinking two things at around 11 ish. One, um, no one can help me. I'm all alone and I don't know who God is at all because what kind of God makes somebody go through this. But then two, they made me go see a sports psychologist. And I remember thinking like, okay, what you do is kind of cool. And I filed it away. And so when I left, so I was, I, so like I said, I went to, a, I am from a small town. I had only 50 kids in my graduating class. I was the only student to go out of state for college. And I went and I studied psychology and I never looked back. I, I knew that there was, I had not been through what I had been through to not be better, to not help others rise. And, and little did I know though, that I was still in such darkness, even up until my recovery after our infertility journey. Um, Cause so much of my, my story there's, and it's not there, it is a gift that I am certified by Brene because I have a true gift in teaching the empathy lesson because it started really young. How does one sit beside an 11 or 13 year old when I had my first surgery, 13 year old, how does one sit beside a 13 year old stuck in a body cast and understand what she is feeling? You feel sorry for her. You feel pity for her. And then 20 years later, how do you sit beside a woman who wanted to have children but can't have them and lost three babies? What do you feel? Most people choose sympathy. But when we choose sympathy, we're sitting alone in our pain. And so I have this gift in this story to really teach people how to sit beside me, to sit with one another in and with our pain and say, this sucks this is brutal. I don't know what to say. I'm here. And so there's that, that common thread throughout my life. And I, so in 20 years of mental health, like I honed that skill. I, I honed that skill of seeing people, making sure that no one walks away from me, not feeling seen because it's in that feeling seen that we will heal and grow and change. 
It sounds like you are the true embodiment of using pain for purpose, but you know, I don't throw that around lightly because it sucks to have to go through the pain to begin with. And so, you know, do you see people as they work through, do you see that to be an adequate statement that often what someone walks through, they're really able to show up and serve for serve people on the other side of it. I mean, everything you've been through, you've been able to take and which obviously I wish you never had to go through that, but you made the most of it and you've shown up and you've taken what you've learned and served others. How do you think that plays out for other people? And what, what have you seen in your work as a therapist? Yeah. I mean, I think that's all of us, right? So there's, there's two parts to this. Like one, we've got to step out of the pain Olympics. Hard is just hard. Struggle is struggle. Loss is loss. Like when we stop comparing the hard parts of our story, they stop being hard. And then we take the power back to rewrite them into our big story. More than that, we're not so dang alone in it. When I sit beside you and like, like what you're going through is super hard. I've been through hard too. Let's navigate this together. That's connection and that's how we heal. And that's then how we can go out and serve the world with our gifts. And that's where resilience is born. So there's, there's that piece to it, that pain, pain to purpose part. The other part too is like, I had to do this work of surrendering to what was not in my control. I used to say, I'd give anything to have those three children here. And it took me a long time to realize that in many ways, my grief had become an idol. My grief had then become my whole identity, which meant I was never going to be able to serve the world with my gifts. I had to do the work of surrendering to what was not ever going to change, letting go, forgiveness, grace, things like that. And at the same time, do the work to rise, do the work of courage, do the work of resilience to make it all a gift because only then could I go out and serve the world. Wow. I mean, but that's, that's a hard place to arrive at. What, what's, how, how does someone not make grief their idol? Like, how do you move out of that? Which you're the expert. So you tell me, you tell us, (laughs) you know, it's well, and I, for years, I've always said grief doesn't get better. It gets different. We might get a little better, I think, maybe coping with it and things like that. But my my grief hasn't gotten better. It's morphed. It's changed. It's grown. It's gotten different. And I believe that we're all in grief because I, I'm not sure that there's anyone whose life has turned out how they hoped, dreamed, and planned. Like, it, yes, we change and we, our dreams change and we we learn to let go and we learn to forgive and things like that. But most of us have grief, whether or not it's a lost job, a lost dream, a lost person, whatever it might be, we have grief. And so we are always going to have to reorient ourselves to who we are walking forward with that loss in our lives. And when we hold on to that loss with this iron fist, with white knuckling our lives, it becomes all of who we are rather than a piece of our story. In the beginning of my grief journey, like, you know, when we ended our journey, when we, when we, called what we, I call our enoughs and everythings. We, we did as much as we had, we did everything in our power. It was our enough. And we said, we were done. We've never felt called to adoption, which is a hard statement to say, especially sometimes in the faith community, because I think a lot of people in the faith community believe like, well, you're supposed to adopt then. And adoption's not a fix to infertility. It's an, it's an alternative to making a family. It's a different way to make a family. And so we never felt that calling. And so to kind of say, okay, this is our enoughs and everything. And then, you know, grief really, really, really hit. And I was in the deep, dark hole. And so at the very beginning of my journey, and I always share this because I, I'm a really big advocate for self-care, which is such a buzzword right now, along with authenticity. And it really, I don't think a lot of people understand the how of authenticity or the how of self-care. And why I love teaching it is because most of us, we're not taught how to love ourselves. We live in this world that tells us that we're not enough every single day. Then we have these traumas, losses, and tragedies on top of it that tell us that we're not enough every day. And then we go to bed at night without our to-do list ever done, ever done, or we've disappointed people and we tell ourselves that we're not enough every day. And so we must practice the action of self-care 
to learn self-love. Like my self-love came into my life when I chose the action of self-care. And at the very beginning of the grief journey, so whether or not someone's in the deep, dark hole of grief or struggle or whatever it might be, or they've never seen someone practice self-care in their entire lives and have no idea what it is, you got to start simple. And so I started simple every day on a post-it note. I had five things, eat, sleep, drink water, move my body. Now, those four things, those are human obligations. However, when you're in the deepest, darkest hole or you've never practiced self-care before, you got to start there because you're probably not doing those things, right? And because I knew that those were human obligations and I needed to start there anyways, the fifth thing I put on there was color. Like I, I literally colored in a coloring book because I knew the data. I knew that when you sat down to color for five to 10 minutes every day, your brain scan looks like you just meditated. And in that deep, dark hole of grief, I was not gonna be able to meditate. I knew my limitations. Yeah, wow. Um, what is the data on coloring? Because, you know, often I think a lot of us are looking for something to do when we are grieving. And I think the basics are, are a good start because again, you know, those are the first things to go. But what's the data behind coloring and why does it help? You know, I, the biggest piece is like you, well, one, you're using both hemispheres of your brain, right? Like, you're using creativity and you're using your discipline to sit down and color, whether or not you're coloring the little mermaid coloring book or you're coloring a mandala or whatever else. And so like we like literally that's all I would do five to 10 minutes. I would color and your brain calms. Plus you're eliciting that creative, that creative part of your brain. And I'll be honest, like when I first started, when I first got um, certified with Brene's work, so Whenever people ask me what book should I start with, I usually say The Gifts of Imperfection of Brene's because it's like the smallest book. It's a guidebook and it gives you feedback. But one of the guideposts of Wholehearted Living is creativity. And then one of the other ones is rest. Because I was in that deep, dark hole of grief and I was not practicing what I had been teaching to my clients for 12 years in self-care, I knew that like in that hole of grief, for me to sit and be quiet and meditate, even if it was to meditate on scripture or something like that, but to sit and breathe, the grief was so consuming. And then what happens when you like have that feeling overtake you or the thought overtake you, especially in grief, you judge it. And it wasn't calming. I wasn't coming out of sitting in meditation, feeling better. So by sitting down and coloring, my hands were busy. I was moving what was in my head to my heart through my hands. And I was eliciting that creative part of my brain. And so my brain, calm, zen, that is also like, that's healing. And so it just started to build that very firm foundation, one brick at a time to realize that one, God was there. But two, I was actually I did have a firm foundation underneath me. I had to stand up. It was only three feet of water. I was not drowning. I had the skills and the tools to stand up. I had to choose them at the same time. It's this piece. I, I've been really struggling lately in the in um, personal development or personal growth or s some of the, you know, the big books coming out. Like, I, I love it. Yes, I love this, you know, action kills fear. Um, five, four, three, two, one, Mel Robbins. I love it. I, I think it's great, valid work. And at the same time, we cannot keep plowing through our emotions and stuffing them down into this endless black hole that does not exist in, in us. You must feel your feelings, identify them, speak them, cope with them in a healthy way and allow them to move through. And yes, rewrite your story and act. It's both. It cannot just be one or the other. Well, I mean, that's a good word, but you're talking to an Enneagram 7 who has no idea how to feel her feelings, especially in live time. So can you give yeah. us some guide, guide, a guide on how to do that? Because I mean, I think so many of us, I, I think even my friends would characterize me as someone who's in touch with our feelings, but ultimately I really only like to feel happy feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And when I am in a season of, grief or loss or heartache. I went through one of the hardest seasons of my career in April. Um, and I, I, my natural inclination is just to plan a bunch of trips so that I can create, yeah. create fun experiences to distract myself. But then I get on the trips and, uh, and, and my husband and I had some significant 
here, I'm reframing, obviously. Um, I had a significant upturn in July. You know, it really panned out. Um, sure. But from April to J- April through June, we had no idea what's next. And mm-hmm. for both of us, we were totally overwhelmed. I booked a trip thinking it would help. We got on the trip and we're stuck in our heads and our feelings. And it's just, that's my natural inclination is to escape yep. and plan fun experiences. I have no totally. idea how to feel. And when I get bored, I'm like, what do I do with myself? Yeah. Oh yeah. Total Enneagram seven. I love it. it you know, it was so funny when I was listening to Annie Downs, um, her, her Ennea summer series. Oh, yeah. And like, and I, I shared the seven podcasts because I was like, so I mistyped myself. I, I thought I was a three with a two wing. I'm actually a four with a very strong three wing. Oh, and yeah. so like, once I really started digging in, cause I was like, I don't, th- I think it was seriously kind of like the season that I was in that hustle part. And then I started to pull away and was like, once you started looking at the mistype research and all that stuff, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I even shared on Instagram and I tagged Annie, Annie. I was like, is this why I don't have any sevens in my life? Cause I'm a four and I feel all my feelings. And you guys are like, no way. Peace out. We're going to go on a trip. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm like, but I want to come on the trip. I will try not to make you talk about your feelings. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. It's, but, but it's been so enlightening to me. And so like, here's the deal. So like, there's a couple things. What, I mean, if anyone's ever seen Brene's Ted talk, the power of vulnerability, one of the most quoted lines out of that is you cannot numb the dark without numbing the light. We don't get to just feel the good feelings. If you try to numb the bad feelings or avoid them or plow through them or push them down or plan the trip all around them, it also means you're not going to get to lean in and feel the joy, the connection, the love, those feelings either. Like we are human. We are wired for connection. We are meant to feel. And so in the work that we're teaching, so being certified with Brene, I love the new curriculum is Dare to Lead, more of a leadership um, lens. And at the same time, like, I, I believe everyone's a leader because you have influence over people. And so um, whether or not you're a leader in your home with your children or you're um, leading your team or whatever it might be, leading an online team, I don't really care. You're a leader. And so like the, the learning to rise process is this piece of like, how do I feel my feelings? Well, you know, when you're hooked, you know, when something happens and you're hooked because your body tells you. And it usually centers in something in your head, whether or not it's racing thoughts, ruminating thoughts, tunnel vision, no thoughts, whatever it might be. It's probably something in your chest, whether or not it's a weight on your chest or racing heart. Or for me, I get like the pounding heart. It reverberates through my entire body. I swear that you could see it. And also in your belly, because that's just, it's where a lot of our anxiety is held. So your belly, so churn in belly, a pit in your belly, a brick in your belly, whatever it might be. You might have the, the tingling hands or sweaty palms, shortness of breath, but your body tells you, because when we are hooked by emotion, I call it angst. When we're feeling that angst, our body tells us, and the first crack, the first thing that writes the story are our emotions. And so we need to slow down our physiological response to bring our thinking brain back on track because then that's where the the famous mantra of this work comes in. What's the story I'm making up? So the most classic example that I use whenever I teach in my trainings. So you send a super hard text to one of your leaders or a super hard text to your best friend or your husband, whoever it might be, and the three dots appear on your phone and then they disappear and then they come back. Like, how many of us would be hooked by that? We'd be hooked by that. Like we would feel the, oh gosh, like, oh, Uh you know, like I'm hooked. Like that's really hard. And what comes in is our emotion starts writing that story. And the story that we make up is hardly ever correct. Oh my gosh, I knew I shouldn't have said that. I knew I just made him mad. Oh my gosh, I went too far. That was really hard. And meanwhile, they just dropped their phone in the toilet and probably won't get back to you for a couple of days because they got to go get a new phone. But we personalize everything, right? Like our brain is wired for story and the stories that it makes up are not correct usually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then we live, then we, but that when we live from those stories that we make up, what I say is we are then reacting to our lives because we were reacting from our emotion rather than responding to our lives. That is 100% 
percent true for me. I know yeah. in the cases that I've felt like that. So, I mean, yeah. So it's, it's these, like, it's this process of, okay, oh man, I'm hooked. Like something's up. I know I don't want to react and offload and hurl or plow through or stuff. So I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to pay attention. I'm not going to send a text. I'm not going to send an email. I'm not going to pick up the phone. I'm going to stop even just for like five seconds and take a deep breath, get my thinking brain back on track, get that fight or fight, fight, fight and freeze response, get it off track. Like, because that's what we're, that's what's happening. And I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to like, say like, okay, what's this really about? What's the story I'm making up? Like, what is this bringing up for me? Oh my gosh, this has nothing to do with what just happened. This is totally triggering this from that, from that, from that. And then I can take another breath and I choose to then co-author my life because now I'm responding to it and not reacting to it. That is so, so good. And I know in my own, in my own journey, I stuff, stuff, stuff. And I don't realize I'm stuffing. I I really just think I'm reframing and feeling the feelings. Like I think of myself as, feeling my feelings. Um, I'll talk about the hard stuff and that, that can be a little different than the stereotypical seven, but I, I reframe everything. And then I wake up six months down the road and I react to something like that. And I'm Mm -hmm. not even feeling about that moment. I'm feeling about all the moments leading up to that. And that final one just caused me to feel everything. And so uh, my husband and I both do not feel negative feelings in real time. So it can be a challenge (laughs) for us where we uh, love therapy. Um, Both of us have really, you know, worked hard because um, we know that we avoid that, especially him. Um, he really doesn't want to feel negative feelings. And so oh, yeah. anything that disrupts his peace, no way, you know? And so um, that's been a big challenge for us because it it is so much easier for me to escape, you know, a few years back. And I know probably some of our listeners have heard this, but like I caught myself just booking plane tickets all the time. You know, I could justify it for work. Like gotta go, gotta go meet that client. Gotta go land this deal. Oh, I should go to that conference and learn. You know, I could always justify it, but it was not what I really needed to be doing. And Mm -hmm. so I made myself stay home for a year. And I described that year as like living in a straight jacket Um, but it was really good for me to like be still and have to feel, and it was not fun, but I think it was necessary. And so Mm -hmm. I I could just listen to you all day long on all of these coping strategies. (laughs) Well, and I, I, that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I am such an advocate for really, really choosing, learning self-love and the action of self-care. Because when, when I choose to pour into myself first. I have this foundation that when, when life does happen, when I am triggered, the hole's not so dang deep, right? Like I just, I, I I fall on the arena floor and not underneath the arena floor and have to dig my way out of the hole. I I'm just on the arena floor. I can pick myself up and say, okay, I did that because my value is faith and courage. And I am going to take a breath. I'm going to like, what is this bringing up for me? What's this really about? And I'm going to choose something differently next. I'm going to feel my feelings. I'm going to identify them. I'm going to speak them. I'm going to cope with them in an effective way. And then I'm going to rewrite the story. That is good. But like when you're not, when you're not choosing yourself and pouring into you and you're just, you really think that you can keep giving what you don't give yourself. When you fall down, you're, you're going to be in a hole. You're not on the, you're not on the floor. You're in a hole. Yeah. And and how do you get out of the hole right. when you've dug that deep? Yep. I, I think for a lot of people, that's where we have to get back to basics. Like, how are you sleeping? I mean, I used to tell people, I, I write this in my, my next book that I'm working on. Like I, as a therapist in traditional mental health, no joke, you would probably feel a 75% difference in all of your d- concerns because we helped you with a nighttime routine and you started sleeping better. How important is sleep with mental health? Oh my gosh. It's, it's a, I think, you know, I, I always tell people like, we're going to start you with a nighttime routine because there's no, if you're not getting good sleep, I'm not going to be, you're not going to be able to get up earlier to move your body. You're not going to get up to, 
to read scripture. You're not going to get up to meditate, whatever it might be. So like, we're going to first start with your nighttime routine because most of us don't know how to get a good night's rest. We don't know how to wind down. We don't know how to breathe. We don't know how to turn off our dang phones. And so we're not getting good rest, which means then we're, we're hitting snooze. We're not getting up in the morning. And as soon as we are heat, feet hit the floor, we're giving to the world and never pouring into ourselves first. Self-awareness and self-love matter. You cannot give what you do not have. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know I personally have had some major mindset blocks that felt like huge hurdles in my own personal journey of achieving my goals. You know, it was helpful for me sitting my booty in that chair each month and processing through these roadblocks with my amazing counselor. Now hear me when I say, I know finding a counselor can be as tough as dating. That's where faithful counseling comes in. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Faithful Counseling is a solution for people seeking traditional mental health counseling who would prefer hearing from the perspective of a Christian. If you're seeking a mental health professional who's a practicing Christian, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in Faithful Counseling's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly or video phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Faithful Counseling is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online counseling and financial aid is available. And guys, don't just take it from me. You can read tons of reviews over on their website. One faithful client writes, in the short amount of time I've been working with my counselor, Colleen, I've gained great clarity and I'm excited to continue working through various personal matters. Guys, visit faithfulcounseling.com slash the radiant podcast Join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional today. We've got a special offer for the Radiant Podcast listeners, and you can get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash the Radiant Podcast. Once again, that's 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash the Radiant Podcast. Guys, I'm so excited for you to start taking control of your mindset and overcoming those mindset hurdles today at faithfulcounseling.com slash the radiant podcast. What would be the true definition? Because you know that it's a self-care is a huge buzzword and so is is. self-love. And I know there's like distortions on that. And then people get all upset about some of those words. And it just gets, you know, there's this rabbit hole on the internet of all this stuff. As a therapist, what would be the 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 true definitions of each of those words? And what are some true techniques, not just surface level techniques to really dive into self-care and self-love? Self-care, I mean, there, you know, that, that graphic keeps going around. Like it is more than just a, taking a bath or getting a manicure, you know, like it's, I, self-care is the action of self-love and self-acceptance. I think a lot of people get, I think what makes people think like, oh, self-acceptance, that means I like, but I I don't like this part about myself or I need to do better. Like self-acceptance doesn't mean that we don't have room to change and grow. Self-acceptance means that you actually love yourself into change and growth. Oh yeah. You know, like I, like this is who I am. I'm going to learn what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? What are my traumas, losses, and tragedies? And I'm going to choose to accept and love her. And at the same time, do the work to make sure that those things all work for me. Because if I don't do that, they just work against me and they define my entire being and eat me alive and leave me empty. And I won't be able to go out and serve the world with my gifts if I am empty. And so like that, there is that let's, the let's go beyond the memes. Let's go beyond, oh, self, self-care is so important. It's not selfish or I want to be authentic. How? How is your life different on a daily basis 
What is the how? What are the words, the skills, and the tools that you implement every day to love yourself first well so you can go out and love others well? Oh, I love that. And I'm with you. I think, you know, sometimes self-care and self-love is getting a little bit of flack, um, especially from the faith-based community. Um, yes. But I think it's, it is the key to being able to give. Like if you don't care for your soul and for yourself, you truly won't be able to show up and serve. Right. right. I I did a video a while back on that because I, I did, I had one of, someone who follows my platform, she's like, I'd really love your opinion on this. Like there's all these Christian bloggers coming out about like how self-care is a sin. And so I mean, Jesus practiced a lot of self-care. Yeah, he went away alone. Yeah, his ministry was only three years, for goodness sakes. He never would have been able to pour out what he did if he did not say no, if he did not take breaks, if he did not pour into himself first. Like, we must take care of ourselves because that's the only way we're going to go out and make disciples. We he, we can't do it when we're tired, resentful and mad at the world and feel taken advantage of because we're not choosing ourselves first. I'm not if there's a difference between self-reliance and self-love and acceptance. Ooh, that's good. That is you so know, like, true. I rely my my truth is in Christ. Like I know that my identity, I know he's got it all and he gave me this awesome thing called free will to make my choices. That is so good. I love Self-reliance is not self-care or self-love. Yeah, or self-love, right. Because, I, I again, I, I, I am not on the train of hating on self-care and self-love because I, I know I cannot show up. Have you ever been at that place? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Where you're stretched so thin, you've neglected yourself. And I think my friends laugh at the story. I don't know if I've ever shared this on the Radiant po- Podcast because people are probably going to think I'm a horrible person, but... Oh, well, I got to a season the year I decided I needed to stay home right before it. Yeah. I got to a season where I was on my way to church and you know, when you're like angry at everything, but you can't tell why. And it's because you're not caring for yourself and you're stretched thin. And I'm on my way to church on a Saturday night, trying to take a break from work. Cause at that point I'm working 24 seven and someone cuts me off in traffic and I find myself flicking them off out the window, a double bird screaming F you. And I'm like, who am I? I am angry. What happened to me? I don't think I'd ever flicked someone off in my life at that person at that point. And it emerged from so deep within. And I was like, "Uh Oh, I, I am angry. And I need to take a break. You were empty. I was, I hadn't cared for myself at all. I was caring for everyone else. And I was stretched so thin and my clients and my audience were getting the best of me, which yep. I, I hate that. That's the, that's such a bummer. And my friends and family were getting the worst and, yep. and then I was getting nothing. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. Oh, me too. I think we've all, I, yes, we go through those seasons for sure. Like for me, my big, one of my big tells and one of like, I had a friend, um, share with me a couple months ago. She goes, honey, the enemy has a bag of tricks. Identify all his tricks. What are his tricks that he uses with you? Identify all of them. So you can, so you can be like, I know what you're doing, dude. And so like, I, I realized one of my big tells that I am not doing good enough is that I start to get that. Um, no one's ever going to help me. They just want all my free stuff. They don't value me. Like I feel taken advantage, advantage of, I get the calls of like, they want to use me for my numbers. And it's like, but I need help too. And it's like, it's that victim mindset. I am truly, I'm triggered by that. And it's because of my own traumas, losses, and tragedies. Like that victim mindset will take a hold of me so quickly and it's valid. Like it doesn't help me to just keep plowing through it acknowledge it. Like, what is this really about? What's this bringing up for me? Oh, it's this piece of like, I've been working really hard. It feels like it's never going to take off. I do feel alone. I am not alone. This is my truth. This is who I am. This is who he says I am. Like, so it's, it's acknowledging it and moving through it, not stuffing it down and plowing through it. That is so good. That is so good. I, um, yeah, I think we've all been there. We all have those moments. So yes. So tell us about your latest book, because I want to hear about the complicated gray. Um, And because I think it can be really helpful. I know it's the number one new release on grief, um, or it has been. And so I think this could be super helpful for our listeners who are really walking through a painful part of life and kind of need some help. 
Yeah. So The Complicated Gray was, uh, oh, good Lord, that book's been under attack since its inception. Um, so it is, um, it's my faith testimony from beginning to where I was at that point. And like, and I, and it, it's a collection of short stories basically. And I, um, I keep a score with God and, um, throughout the book because I was pretty mad. I didn't, um, you know, one of the most common questions I get asked as I'm sharing more and more and, um, people are learning who I am is like, how did you survive two back surgeries, a year in a body cast, failed infertility treatments and not know Jesus. Like I, I just did a podcast interview and I had told him, I said, I go, I'm kind of different than a lot of your guests. A lot of your guests had Christ through their trauma. I didn't discover who he truly was until after it. And so it, the, the complicated gray is really, it's the story of giving myself permission to really be mad at God and turning towards him with it because he knows it and he can handle it. Having the courage to say, what does happen when the person you have to forgive is God? Yeah. And I think that as, as much flack as that might get, I think a lot of people are going to relate. Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's not an easy, I, um, the, so it's, I self-published this one again. And so I had, um, the, the company I went with, she was like, I need you to soften the language. I was like, I softened it as much as I can. Like it took that many curse words to find him. And he loves me more for that. Yep. You know, like, and I, so my, the book I'm currently working on is, um, like it's more so cause I keep. I kept coming back to this idea and I, I write about it in the complicated gray. It's one of, it's one of the opening stories, but like, I, I think so many people, they don't know who Christ is because they're so mad at God. We will never introduce people to the resurrecting Jesus unless they understand the loving father. Yeah. And, and that's just another form of not allowing ourselves to feel if we, if we can't be mad at God, how can we ever process those feelings? God's a big boy. He can handle it. Right. Your parents can handle when you're mad at you, when, when their child is mad at them. So God can do the same. If he's the picture of a perfect parent, he can handle his little girl or little boy being mad at them, mad at him for a little bit. Right. And like, and for us then to really, to turn towards him with it, and, and to ask him, will you, will you show me where were you? I, cause I need you to show me, like, show me where you were in that moment because he was there sitting beside you. Cause he's walked it all first. Yeah. That's a big part of the therapy I've done is to look at the trauma of my childhood and say, God, where were you? And yep. to envision where Jesus literally was sitting in that memory, in that Me room. And Me so um, while it doesn't always feel like he's there, he is. Um, but we can't deal with grief and pain by not acknowledging it. And not acknowledging the, the, the loss of like, where, who was there for me? No one advocated for me, you know? Right, right, right. And God did, but like, it takes dealing, like feeling the feelings to recognize that first. And so, man, so what has the response been? I'm sure you have people that obviously are dramatically positively impacted because, and and then I'm sure you have people who no one's immune to pain. Everyone's gone through hard stuff, but sometimes people until they go through a horrific season can't understand the cuss words or the anger. Like they just don't have the capacity because maybe they've never experienced it thus far. And so what has the response been like? Yeah, it's, um, it's so interesting. I've had multiple people say like, I, I think at first you would think that how you speak and how you share Jesus and resiliency and things like that would reach people seeking. And what I am finding is that um, a lot of people who have been hurt by the church or um, have grown very bored or um, lost their sense of awe and wonder, they are finding a home in my work. Um, there's this, there's just this piece of like, I, this story that God has gifted me with um, really gives people permission to struggle and rise at the same time. And so, um, and I, I, 
it's just really, truly, I mean, going all the way back to the beginning, like it is speaking the unspoken. There's so much, um, I think, especially in the faith community, we're so scared to talk about, and that is what is creating the most harm. And so when we have the words and the tools and the skills to to really wrestle, to really stumble, to really struggle, and to know that like, he doesn't change, we change. And we've, we have to work with him and not against him. Yeah, man. I, what, as a creative, what has it felt like to realize like, oh, you're going to have your people that flock to your work, especially the most vulnerable work of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some people are going to say, no, I like process this differently. Um, I wouldn't use cuss words or I wouldn't be angry. And it's like, that's fine. But my work is going to speak to the person who does feel that. Right. Oh man. Isn't, isn't that the toughest part of being a creative and putting work out into the world? Like just like trusting, you know, I even the other day I made an announcement that I'm no longer going to be putting on my own workshops because I, I can't fill them. Like, but I have all of these other workshops and corporations bringing me in and they're filling super fast. And, um, I had a friend reach out to me and she goes, she goes, I just needed to tell, I was in my prayer time. And the Lord was like, you need to tell her, like, I have you exactly where I want her. Like I have her where I want her. I have exactly who I want in front of her, whether or not it's four people or 40 people. And it's like, oh, and it's like that, it's that trust. Like, I know it will reach the right people when they're ready to receive it. And that he, and, but man, also knowing what I know and seeing the lives changed by the work that I teach, Brene's work, my story, whatever it might be, the gospel, like, it's just kind of like, but I want everybody. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And there's my Enneagram three wing where I'm like, no, come on, success, numbers, let's do this. Like, (laughs) totally. 100%. I'm, I'm a more is more type of girl. So I want all the things right now. I love all the things and I want a lot of it. Yes. Yeah. And so I, um, I totally resonate with that, but I I think that's a timely word for a lot of us of just, wow, you're exactly where you need to be. Um, and I'm hearing that message surface in a few different like friend groups of like, you are right on time. You are exactly where you need to be. Um, and I think, um, in kind of a culture and especially an online space that is racked with like, she's doing this and that person's on this mountaintop and this person just reached that milestone. It's like, nope, you're exactly where you need to be. You have the exact people in front of you that need to hear your story. And, and, and I went to a missions program, you know, I think five years ago to this month. And for a summer, I was abroad in Mozambique And I'll never forget, you know, the whole message of the ministry was like, stop for the one person. Like if it's for the one person right in front of you. Um, And so I always come back home to that, but it's hard. Like I definitely get lost and like more, I I want more people. I I have a hard time filling, filling workshops as well. And so um, it's, it's a delicate balance, huh? It really is. And I, I'm, I really remind myself, like he, he left the 99 for me. Like he came, he chased after me in a way that was difficult. And if I'm not, if I'm not doing my work, I can get frustrated with, but like he came out, he left the 99 and came after me and I will do the same. I will go for the one because that is enough. And when that, and I will know that that is one of the ways that darkness works against me when I get tripped up in the numbers and don't trust who's in front of me and who's receiving it because they are ready. And allow that to be enough. Tell us one thing that I love chatting about in our first interview was <laughs> the monarch butterflies. Tell us about them because I think it's such a fa- I think it's fascinating. Tell us more. I want to hear and it again. Everyone, like it is the weirdest and coolest hobby. Everyone loves it. They think I'm crazy for doing it. But so when we like ended our infertility journey, like we, we had to rewrite. And so I knew the data, I knew that couples who have hobbies together are, are happier. And also, especially couples who learn something together, <laughs> So especially for my husband, Chad and I, we knew our limitations. We don't work well with, with one of us teaching the other. Um, 
And so like we live on an acre in the middle of St. Louis, which St. Louis is along the Monarch Migration Highway. So Monarch butterflies, we've lost over 90% of their population in the last 25 years due to development and mostly pesticides and chemicals and things like that. And so they migrate from Canada to Mexico to hibernate every year. And so we were like, okay, we have this acre of land. Let's plant a butterfly garden. Let's research how to help the monarchs a little bit. And so we we dug up the land, we buried what needed to die so something new could grow. And it took a whole year where we finally saw a monarch lay an egg. And um, I started just Googling it and looking up on Instagram and realized that people were raising monarch butterflies inside because only one to 5% of monarch eggs laid in the wild make it to a butterfly because of natural predators, because of chemicals and natural predators. And so bringing them inside, I really have like a I, like 80% of them make it. And so um, we, this is our fourth season raising monarch butterflies. We average usually anywhere from 200 to 350 monarchs a year. We also do swallowtails because swallowtails are really, really easy to raise. Monarchs are kind of a pain in the butt, but I love them. And they, what we didn't know or realize is that I mean, I think everybody looks at the butterfly as a symbol of resiliency. We, we've seen all those graphics, you know, like, like the monarch can't see the beauty of its wings or the caterpillar has to become undone to become the butterfly. But when you really know the life cycle of the butterfly specifically, especially the monarch butterfly, I do really, really believe that they're one of God's gifts to us to remind us that we really can rise. And so this next book that I'm working on, I'm actually taking the reader through the entire monarch life cycle and pairing one of the big lies that we tend to believe about God to that, that section of the life cycle. Cause like, for example, one of the biggest things that I love about teaching about the monarchs is so when a, a caterpillar, they're caterpillars for about two weeks and then they're in the chrysalis for about two weeks. So a lot of people know about the chrysalis. They have to become undone and they like, they literally become butterfly soup um, before they emerge as a flying creature, this beautiful creature that we all love. But when they're in the two week caterpillar stage, they're eating a ton of milkweed. They're also pooping a lot. Um, so, but like they also, they molt, which they grow out of their old skin four times in that two week span. They grow 2000 times their size in two weeks. They grow out of their old skin because you have to grow. You've got to work. You've got to walk out of your old skin. But then the craziest part is that they turn around and they eat it. Now, a lot of us would say that's disgusting, whatever else. But like for me as a therapist and like learning what I have learned through the gospels and, and through this resilient life and story of mine is that like, you can't get rid of your past. You're not supposed to, you must absolutely choose to do the work to make it work for you and not against you. What do you, you know, for me, I, I got a word in the spring about metamorphosis. That was obviously, I, I think we, we love that, that analogy, but you know, what does that say to someone embrace it, having to embrace their past to move towards like the fullness of who they're meant to be? Because I think you're right. You know, like we have to go into the cocoon phase of healing yep. and kind of die to ourselves um, yep. and, and embrace change and healing and everything we've been through to like blossom and become, you know, the right. beautiful butterfly we are meant to be. Right. I There's that piece of like, when we are when we are white knuckling it and we're holding on to those those harder parts of our story they define all of us you know a lot when i started to really realize that my grief had become an idol one of the reasons i was still white knuckling and holding on to it so tightly is because if i allowed healing to come in if i did that work to make it work for me and not against me and i let some of that go to heal there is that part of me that was like li that lie that was being used against me was like, well, then it's like they never existed. It's like you didn't want to be a mother enough. And it's like the pain didn't matter. And it's actually the opposite. The more tightly you hold on to it, the more it defines all of you and prevents you from walking in your truth. I, I loved the phrase you just used, white knuckling it, because I, I can do that. Yeah. So, so often I just white knuckle, grin and bear it, reframe, make yep. it, make it a positive experience, but you have 
to not embrace that experience as in, oh, I loved it, but you have to feel it and you have to move through it. And it doesn't mean acknowledging those feelings discounts them. It actually, it actually allows them to shape you for what's ahead and how you can, can move forward. Yeah. You know, um, I love the illustration of a butterfly and something I heard, you know, back in the spring, which you correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, a a butterfly goes in or a caterpillar goes into the cocoon with one image receptor and they come out with like 16 and and a human only has three image receptors. Right. And so kind of the, the illustration that if you will go into that place and do the work, you will emerge with the ability to take on the world with sight that is far beyond what you could have ever experienced if you hadn't have have done the work. Right. Well, and the, one of the crazier parts too, like that chrysalis was in her the entire time. Like from that microscopic egg, she had every cell she needed. She had to grow out of her old skin. She had to become undone and go literally into a butterfly soup with the cells and then, and be patient. And like, literally, I mean, when she emerges, she's not done with her work. She has to pump her own wings up. She has to wait patiently for them to dry. She has to knit together the proboscis, which is how they eat. Like she's not done. She has to become undone and do the work. It's both. But that, that's the crazy part. Like a lot of like moths knit their cocoon. Caterpillars, bat- butterflies have their chrysalis inside them the entire time. I could listen to you talk about this all day long because I think that was just such a powerful um, description of, you know. We just need a little help. We have it. We, we just learned need some help. so much from this process that, that, that butterflies go through. And I can see why you you love these monarchs and I get do. to allow them to be your babies. I think it's so cool. I, w- I wish monarchs came through Colorado Springs. I, yeah, they're not. Well, and like, so the monarchs that are that hibernate in California, they will migrate from the Rockies, but that's it. They're they're not the they're kind of a different they're monarchs, but they don't migrate as long. And so like my husband and I in December, we actually went out. We were like, OK, we're we can't get to the, the Mexico mountains yet. Um, that's like a not an easy trip to make, but that's where like millions of monarchs will hibernate. Cool. So we're like, let's go out to California. And we did a road trip to go see um, the California monarchs and their hibernation habitats. And it was <laughs> it was the worst year they ever had. <laughs> like the numbers were horrible. And so like, I'm always telling people like, no, if you live between the Rockies and California, you need to put milkweed in your gardens and you need to like stop using chemicals. I'm, I'm a crazy person about it. My poor husband is like, you do, I do remember four years ago, you said you would weed because I'm not allowed to use chemicals. And I was like, yeah, but I don't really like weeding. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Well, I, I, I don't know. We're a little removed from the, I mean, we have Pikes Peak, right? Up against, yeah, but we're not against we're not up against the mountain. Uh, so, yeah. And so, um, oh, man, I would love to make it to I, I had I just Googled like where are these in Mexico? I want to go, but I can imagine. I it's, know. Well, and because I started looking at because we've the monarchs had an amazing year in Mexico. We were up one hundred and forty percent, which is the first increase in population that we've had in a very long time in the mountains of Mexico. And like, but I'm also like so far having not a very good monarch season. I've released 65 monarchs and I haven't had any caterpillars because we have, we've had so much rain. And so they just aren't, I think they're going around the storms. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the numbers are this winter in Mexico. But so to go you fly into Mexico city, but then it's like you drive two and a half hours and then it's like a two and a half hour hike or horse ride up into the elevated mountains to go see the monarchs. But it's literally millions and millions and millions of monarchs. That is incredible. I know it would just be so, I mean, it would be amazing. So it's like, that's what I mean. It's not an easy trip to make. And so it's like, we, it's just, but it's one that I will, I will see in my lifetime sooner than later. That is for sure. Because just to be surrounded by that many monarchs. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh man. Just seeing, I could talk all day long. Where <laughs> can our listeners find more of you? I know you have a podcast. Tell us about your books. Where can they yeah. find you on Instagram? The first thing is when people meet me in person, I get two things. Number one, they always say, you're so much smaller in person than I thought you'd be. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a wordy, wordy person and I'm pretty loud. But then number two, they're like, oh yeah. So I Googled you. I'm like, okay. So you went down the rabbit hole of content. So there's no shortage of content. So I'm, 
But the easiest place to find me is my website, justinefrolker.com. That's where you can find all my social media accounts. That's where you can find out about the Dare to Lead trainings that I have coming up. You, I have a huge resource list, like all my favorite books, my favorite podcasts, my favorite self-care supplies. That's all on there. Um, and then I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and share um, pretty exclusive content across all those boards. Um, the books are on Amazon. I have a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos at this point. And then I do have a podcast, which is simply my podcast or my YouTube videos. The audio is stripped and put on YouTube because I don't have the big bandwidth team yet to manage a podcast. Maybe one day. <laughs> I look forward to having the, a bigger team for my podcast too, which is why my, uh, I'm just getting better at actually sending an email out for every podcast. There you go. I know. And people are always like, well, you need to do a podcast. I go, that's I, not my bandwidth right now. I got it. I know my limits. Like I know my limits. And yeah, at the same time, it's like, okay, we are missing an audience. I have the content. Let's put it on a podcast. So we yeah. did that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I have a feeling our listeners are definitely going to um, go down that Google rabbit hole. And thank, thank you <laughs> so much for joining us today, for sharing your story, for sharing the nitty gritty parts of your story, those that aren't so glamorous. But I think that's what relates, like the anger and navigating yep. that pain, because I think we do have to feel it first. And and I, I tend to process it in a, in a similar way. So I, I would be your person to relate to your story. So thank you so much for joining us. And we'll definitely have to have you back on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, don't go yet. I would love it if you go over to iTunes right now and leave a review. I love hearing your feedback and it really makes a difference in getting the Radiant Podcast name out there. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe and then share this episode on Facebook or Instagram or wherever your social media platform is of choice. Lastly, I'd love to keep up with each other. Come find me on Instagram at Kels Chapman and let's get to know each other.